Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kolsima Ali. Hello, my name's Shireen Kerr and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm James Boston and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I'm Bafo Ababio and you're listening to Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Jameel Amaraji, and you listen to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Akwa, and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm John Almir, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Chelsea Coombson, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, my name is Laura Marvin, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. I hope you've had a great start to your week and all is well. If you need to reach me, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter. The handle is at Bereavement Room. Talking of social media, a couple of months back I put a call out for our South American, Latin American communities because I'm keen to understand grief across the South American community, whether you're from Venezuela or Peru or Chile. Um, I'm keen to find out a little bit more about how bereavement um, and you know what grief might look like from the perspective of uh, someone within the South American community. Of course communities vary depending on their belief systems. It's not all one size fits all. It's a you know it's an individual journey but I realised I haven't had any South American or Latin American guests and I was kind of keen to speak to some someone from, from our South American community. So it's very, very fortunate after putting in that call out that uh, a counsellor that identifies as British Venezuelan got in contact with me and she said that she would love to come on the show and talk about her own experiences of what it was like when her grandmother died but also just kind of what her training journey was like and self-compassion, etc. So I thought, why not? Let's do this. So it brings me great pleasure to say that Marvis Stewart, she is today's guest. Marvis is a humanistic Gestalt counsellor practising in Hampshire. She specialises in working with children and young people, as well as training counsellors. She works in primary school settings while also holding private practice for adults. She's been living in England for more than a decade. Some of her other professional interests revolve around multicultural issues, LGBTQ+, allyship and self-compassion. As always, thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Kulsi Ma Ali. Hi everyone, welcome back to Bereavement Room podcast, another episode of why we do what we do, reflecting on grief and loss. I'm thrilled to say that I am joined by today's guest, Marvis Stewart. Welcome Marvis, how are you? Hello, thank you for having me. I am well, thank you. Good, good. So, Um, Today we're going to be talking about life, death, uh, Latin American communities and also about counselling and psychotherapy because you are a Gestalt counsellor, is that correct? Yes, um, I am a humanistic Gestalt therapist. Um, I've been practising for about six years now. Um, I did my core training uh, in Hampshire. In Hampshire, I did my core training here in Hampshire. Um, that's my core training, and then I went on to do a post-qualifying um, diploma in counselling children and adolescents. Mm. And um, just for my listeners, because they're probably not familiar with modalities, um, how would you describe Gestalt? What type of therapy is that? Mm. Yes. Um, well, I'm biased. I'm going to say that it's, uh, it's great. It's a great uh, modality. And Gestalt therapy is about raising awareness. Um, so clients come and they may feel stuck. They may feel like they don't know what to do. There's, they have a problem in their lives. And my job is to facilitate their self-awareness it's for them to understand what is going on within themselves. Um, 
my job is also to help them make links uh, from the past into the here and now. So uh, we don't necessarily explore or analyze whatever happened, whatever events may have happened for them in the past. Um, but I help them understand how events and circumstances, um, things that have happened to them in the past affect the way that they are now in their thinking, in their feelings and their behavior. So it's about raising awareness, raising self-awareness. Um, Gestalt is also about um, working somatically. So um, listening to our bodies is a holistic approach. So um, we look at the person as a whole and um, we also don't, well, I want to say we, but uh, within my training, um, it was important not to pay too much attention to labels. So when people come, when clients come and say, I'm selfish, I'm a selfish person, then um, I usually ask, well, are you selfish from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed? And they're like, well, no, not really. <laughs> I'm not selfish all the time. I was selfish this one time. And mm -hmm. so um, we explore labels and what they mean, uh, the labels that they give themselves and the labels that are given to them by others either. And when I mean others, I mean the systems. So mental health institutions, medical doctors, psychiatrists, and the, and the labels that um, maybe family or friends give them too. And yeah. we, we, explore, we explore what that means to them as well. But um, a label does not define a person in my view. And so it may impact their life and, um, and what it means to them. Wow. I feel like your explanation of Gestalt is the best explanation I've heard <laughs> of what it means. Um, I went on a Gestalt taste today, actually, uh, about a year ago. And mm. it, was, it was great. But I just feel like I understand it a lot better um, for, from hearing from you. And I, uh, you talk about labels. I think that's really interesting when people say, oh, I'm a selfish person. Um, I guess I never looked at it from that perspective. Well, is it that one thing or are you selfish all the time, you know, when you wake up or before you go to bed? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, it takes a lot of energy, doesn't it, to say, to sustain a label, right? So when maybe a mom comes and says, I'm such a bad mother. And so then I say, okay, tell me, tell me everything about being a bad mother. And it's like, oh, I didn't prepare the lunch or I didn't make the dinner that they wanted or I couldn't go to the one event. Um, and then they realize that actually just because maybe they're not able to um, fulfill their own expectations and the pressures that they put on themselves in terms of um, being the best or the shoots that they have, Mm. then um, then they realize actually that's a part of me. Sometimes I behave like that. Sometimes I feel selfish. Sometimes I act selfishly. Sometimes I think that I'm a bad mother or sometimes I am not behaving at my best, whatever that may be for them. Um, and then they realize that they're not, there's more to them than the label that they give to themselves. Mm absolutely yeah mm. i couldn't agree more um that sounds really profound to me i it might sound basic to others but i guess i never really looked at it like mm -hmm. that because we do make throwaway label comments uh all the time yes and labels have such a profound you, you i think you you are so right that there is something profound about the way that people describe us and we describe ourselves so if, if we think again of maybe a families where um, you know, within family systems, we may have the the smart one, the troublemaker one, the you know the organized one. Uh, we within families already uh, with siblings, um, parents may give us labels, or we give labels to our siblings, and those labels and those um, yeah they stay with us. 
Mm. And then we, we start telling ourselves a story like I'm I'm this way because that's what I've been told or that I, I and, and so then if I am this way, can I change or is this me? Is this part of me or is or was this given to me by other people? And mm. uh, and that's when then coming to therapy helps right it, it always mm. I always think it helps to go to therapy um, but to kind of understand hmm is, is this mine is this label really truly mine do I want to embrace it and do I want to own it or is this something that was given to me and I'm just carrying it around I'm just carrying it all around mm. uh, because um, because I haven't really thought about it wow thank you so much I feel mm. like me and my listeners have gotten a lot out of that um because I definitely do walk around with a lot of labels sometimes um so yeah I mean what what led you to therapy then Marvis um well I had a really bad experience of of therapy when I was a teenager um and I just felt um I just felt that I could have done better I just felt at that time when I was so vulnerable and I needed someone to help me and this person this person didn't help me I thought I I want to do this one day for other people I want to be the person that um, someone can come and talk to and and be heard and be listened and be understood and so I wanted to help others. I wanted to ease other people's sufferings. I so instead of thinking that I was not good and that my you know although I did think it, something was wrong with me when the therapist didn't help me, um, I think I just wanted to give others a positive experience, and I wanted to be the person for others that had not been there for me. That's amazing. That is really amazing. Um, I think our personal experiences do lead us to where we are and mm. the work, work that we do. Just like Bereavement Room podcast, I had bad experiences. And so I set up the podcast. And I think it's very similar for so many counsellors and therapists too, that there's always a story uh, behind what leads them to therapy. Yes, I think there's something that is compelling or driving us to be in this kind of um, profession that is also, for me, a vocation. Mm. Um, I think this type of job, you know, listening to others, helping others, um, it's, it's, it, for me, it comes from a very deep, deep part of myself that wants to help them. And through helping them, somehow, of course, I end up helping myself and healing myself. Mm. Um, and so, um, it is a, an enormous privilege, um, and an honor, actually, it feels an enormous privilege to be able to, to help others. And when people come to therapy and they, they trust us and they open up to us and, and they are able to be vulnerable and courageous at the same time, it is, it is a beautiful thing to witness, um, to see and and to know that we have been part of that that I have been part of that process is is really satisfying and rewarding absolutely absolutely mm. um because there is something about being very vulnerable um and and going through that journey which kind of brings me to ask did you enjoy your training <laughs> <laughs> what was that like um I think um the training was hard I think counseling training is hard. Um, it's consuming. It's relentless. Um, just the amount of assignments, so the academics of it um, was relentless. It felt relentless to me. You know, assignments, presentations, uh, journaling, um, putting together a portfolio. Um, I would say overall, yes, I did enjoy it, and I learned, of course, a lot from it. Um, I was the only brown person in that room and all the other ladies were white British. Okay. Um, and so um, that in itself, you know, we could do another podcast about what that means being, you know, different in white spaces. And that's another mm. podcast and something else. But but it, overall, it was it was good. It was good training. Um, I learned a lot. I did enjoy it. 
I was very satisfied and proud of myself when I completed it, but I was also really exhausted <laughs> when I finished it mm-hmm. um, because um, doing personal therapy and and being in this constant self-exploration, it was wonderful and also um, I would say, um, I want to say mentally exhausting again. It, that's how it felt to me. It felt like I was discovering parts of myself that um, were there, were, were, had always been there, um, but I hadn't looked. And mm-hmm. then once I started looking within, then I started to realize, to become aware, to become self-aware of, of, of so many areas that I hadn't looked or I didn't want to look. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and personal therapy was a big part of that, you know, going mm. to going and being vulnerable with someone else. Mm. So I do believe that, of course, in training is really, really important to have your own personal therapy so mm. that you know what it feels like to be on the other side. Mm. And um, I think in counselling training, it is, as you say, a bit of a self-discovery journey. I mean, I only did my foundation year and for me it was it opened my eyes up to so much mm. i think the aspect i enjoyed the most was group process i didn't particularly enjoy fish bowls or anything like that um and there was something about group process that i really liked and it is very mentally draining i i would cry every thursday after i'd leave um, thursday that was my day too my day was a thursday <laughs> oh really that's so strange <laughs> oh yeah that's so oh gosh okay so, i remember yeah. i remember going and i remember feeling always very excited to go thinking yeah. oh, what am i going to learn today and then at the end of the day i was thinking oh my gosh my mm. brain is so full and empty and I have a headache and what is what is going on I mean there there was so much input there was so much information in terms of theory and knowledge but also um it it always also felt like I was rummaging through this the box of my life and I was just every time I looked in this box there was always something more something else that I hadn't seen and um and so then I, I would come home and I would need like about a half an hour, 40 minutes of just like mm-hmm. winding down and just like returning to myself because mm-hmm. uh, it was so tiring. It was so, so tiring for me. It is. Yeah, it is massively tiring and mentally exhausting, which kind of brings me to ask, what was your self-care like? How do you practice self-care? Oh, it, oh that's uh, that's a really interesting question because um, all my clients now that are trainees, uh, that is one of the things that we're always talking about. And I have to say that I was not as good at in uh, I was I was not as good doing self care then um, compared to what I am now. Um, self care at the moment is extremely important. It is something that is on my mental list. It's on my diary. It's on my calendar everywhere. Uh, I can I can write it down. I make sure that I that I take time off and that I self-care, um, especially now with the pandemic going on. Um, so many changes, so many things happening in the world. Um, self-care is one of my top three priorities. Mm. Uh, but when I was training, I, I have to say, if I want to be completely honest, that that was not that was not in my priorities. I was trying to survive training and uh, really have little children um, and trying to be a, a mother and trying to be a student and trying to be a friend and trying to get these assignments done. And 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 then the weekend would come and it would be like, oh, I can relax now. And um, so, yes, I was not as I was not as good um, with self-care as I am now. Mm. So what would a typical self-care day look like for you now versus back then? Okay, so self-care means no working on the weekend, uh, means no looking at my work emails. Um, It means um, maybe um, listening to an audiobook that I enjoy. Mm. Um, It could be um, having a nice bath. It could be... Um, 
on a Friday night, could be planning my week ahead. So um, I'm working online, so I prepare all my meetings on uh, before the weekend. I um, I plan my week ahead so that then it doesn't take me by surprise. I know what's happening every every day of the week. Um, it could be trying to drink more water, mm. uh, going to sleep. Very important. Yes, drinking water is really important. Um, it could be also um, trying to get more sleep, sleep, mm. sleep more hours. Um, um, it could be having time with my family. Um, it's for me it's very much about the quality of time we are all busy and I have teenagers now and so they don't really want to spend a lot of time with me mm. uh, because they're 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 doing their own thing but it's about finding those moments of quality time um, and so I find self-care in different ways you know uh, physical self-care um, spiritual um, practical self-care um, just making sure that maybe I cover a few areas, so not 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 be so focused on one specific type of self care. But mm. um, I could also I love watching uh, movies and series, so um, just watching my favorite show. That also yeah. it's really lovely and um, relaxing. And what's your favorite show at the moment? <gasps> oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, but I really am enjoying uh, a Netflix. Um, show series called Sense8 Sense8 oh, okay I haven't seen that yet oh I really recommend it it's really lovely and I'm I'm reading I'm listening to um, the audiobook um, The Midnight Library by Matt Haig okay and that yes. is also a very beautiful book that I really would recommend um, I, I really I'd really I'd recommend it to my friends and to my clients to anyone um it's this really 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 beautiful book so those are the kind of things that I do well, self-care it sounds very varied uh which is always great and I feel like everyone receives a Matt Haig book every year at Christmas <laughs> at some point because he is that good but um, yeah it's interesting that's yes. interesting Yes, yeah, so um, I like reading a lot or um, because I don't have a lot of time to actually be reading, like sitting down with a book. I gave myself um, an Audible subscription for Christmas about two, two years ago as, a, mm. as, a, as my Christmas present to myself. Mm. Um, and, um, and it's really wonderful because I can be driving, I can be doing things around the house and I can still be listening um, and so it makes me feel like um, like I'm not, well, I don't want to say that I'm not wasting time. It's, it's good to waste time, too, and do nothing. Absolutely. Uh, yes, I, I like that, too. But uh, sometimes if I'm cleaning or sorting out the laundry, things like that, then it's nice to kind of maybe have someone. It's like someone reading a book to you, and it makes me feel quite child, mm. childlike. Having, very soothing. Uh, yes, it's very, very soothing. So that's that's mm. and that's another aspect of it, of why I like it. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I, for me, I do love listening to audio and podcasts. That's probably one of my favourite things to do, um, weirdly, as a podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> so before we kind of get into um, bereavement, grief, identity loss, from the perspective of Latin American communities or Venezuelan communities, I just wanted to ask you just a final thing about therapy. Um, what's yeah. the What's the one thing that you love about the therapy world now that you are qualified, and the one thing that proves to be frustrating or challenging that needs more work? Mm. Um, what I love about the therapy world is that um, there is a community of like-minded people. Mm. And so every time I go to a CPD event or a conference or uh, I meet with other counselors, I feel that we are on the same wavelength. It doesn't matter what modality we practice, okay. how long we've been living, you know, working together. I feel like the core, the core of therapy, which is for me, is um, to ease the distress mm. of people. Um, it's there so there's a lot of there's a wealth of knowledge mm. um, that and love that is in the profession you know that it's it's really wonderful to see 
Um, I have recently found a, a huge community of, of these type of people, of colleagues on Twitter. Um, yes. I was not yes. very active on Twitter until like the pandemic hit. And then all of a sudden I thought I work, I work, I work from home. Um, and so I start, I switched my practice online. And so I found myself feeling a bit isolated. I, I wasn't going out anymore. And Twitter was amazing in connecting me with so many other therapists out there that um, are doing a lot, are saying a lot about uh, mental health and well-being and, um, and talking about the important issues that are going on uh, within our profession at the moment. Sure, yeah. Um, what is frustrating? I think what's frustrating is that um, we cannot get away from the fact that um, we are humans and we have our own biases. Sure. And so all of us counselors and psychotherapists that come in with our own knowledge and our own modalities um, have also opinions as to how the profession should be moving mm. forward. Mm. Um, and that feels different than client care than listening to our clients and being in the room with our clients that feels um that's that's it to me that feels like that is separate from what should we be doing as a profession as a whole in within the UK and I think at the moment um there is a sense of um division be uh, in relation to the scoped project the sure. And that is um, for any counselors or psychotherapists out there, that is the scope of practice and education for counseling and psychotherapy. And, uh, and that is a framework uh, 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 that is coming out, that, that, that is in, in consultation at the moment and is bringing a lot of us, um, is making us think a lot and, and, and give and have different, very different opinions about how we want this profession to move forward. Um, there's a lot of information about it online and on Twitter, but I think uh, what I find so frustrating again is the fact that here we are, we all have our clients' best interests at heart, or at mm -hmm. least that's, that's, how, that's what I have and that's what I want to believe that all of us have, and yet at the same time we are talking about um, dividing us into categories and um, and there's a lot a lot of issues that come with with the yeah. with, with with that with that issue with those with that framework sounds very political yes it is it is and um, and if anyone is interested I would really encourage them to really engage uh, Twitter Facebook um, email 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 emailing their own uh, you know a membership bodies um, listening to others, listening to both sides. Sure. Uh, it is important to listen to what everyone says, listening to everyone's voices. That's really important too. And do you think that will happen or is it happening in various pockets of groups? <sighs> I think like, uh, I, I, I think sometimes that happens, but I think, um, the problem or the issue or the concern that that I that I that I have is that um, there's not I don't feel that there's a lot of clarity around scoped and so then it's exactly what you said then we form pockets of either we love it or we hate it and mm. then once you form those two kind of groups um, the ones that are pro and the ones that are against and maybe there's a middle group that wants to find a compromise uh, let's not scrap it all together, uh, but let's not keep it as it is. Um, um, then we we all become entrenched in our position. Mm. Uh, and if there was more clarity from the membership bodies, I feel that it would give us some answers. Um, and it might it might clarify a lot of the questions that we have. So mm. so yes, I don't think it's uh, it's a it's I don't think it's that easy. I think there are so many, so many people now involved and so many people that have had a voice and so many people that haven't had a, a voice. Mm. Um, and so I'm still waiting. I'm waiting to see what happens because that's still going on. So 
yeah I'm seeing it every day when I log in um yes and I'm just curious do you think the general consensus is for the for the project or against Skype it is hard to say Mm. And um, I, I could say, well, based on what I see on Twitter, which is yeah. not a very reliable in no, terms of like getting numbers, right? No, no. Um, I think what would be what would be helpful if is would be if um, the membership bodies would tell us more about this is the feedback that we have received. This is how many people are pro. These are how many people are on the fence or we haven't had any engagement from thousand, however number of people. I think I think it's, that's a hard question because I would say Twitter is a lot, um, it's a world of its own, right? Yeah, it's and very then we, yeah, we find our <laughs> our own kind of people yes, that we, we agree do. that we agree with, um, and so it's hard to know from Twitter or even from Facebook what's happening. And actually, we shouldn't be looking at Twitter or Facebook to know what's right. happening. We should be waiting and expecting. I I'm expecting my membership body to inform me what is going on and how many people are um, against it or how many people. Mm. What is the feedback? And mm. because we don't have that, then um, I don't think it's helpful. Uh, in the end, I don't think it's helpful overall. Mm. I completely agree with you. I think it is the responsibility of the membership body to kind of communicate that and clarify that because social media is social media at the end of the day. And, yes. and that does need to come from the membership body because they are accountable. Yes. Which yes. now, thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Uh, it's really good to kind of, you know, talk about these things and openly reflect. Um, so now I, I would love to kind of find out what your experiences are of death and grief and bereavement mm. within your community. So feel free to share and reflect. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to say that... Um, the reason that I wanted to to come on to your podcast when you sent out the tweet about uh, are there any Latin Americans out there, it was because um, there are not many Latin Americans that I come across with. And I feel that is really important for all our voices to be heard. And I thought maybe if I come on to your um, podcast, then maybe other South Americans, Latin Americans may feel um, able also to to reach out in their own way to mm. do other things mm. um and also i wanted to say that what i want to share with you today of course is my personal experience uh, mm. of what i remember and how i have experienced um grief and bereavement um in my within my family and within my community but yeah. that may not be necessarily of course the experience of every person in latin america or even people within my own country Mm. Um, and I and I also um, wanted to I wanted to come to to speak to you. I wanted to speak to you because I was thinking of my grandmother um, who died in 2011, um, and she was 96 years old. She was 96 when she died, um, and I was here living in England, and she was in Venezuela. And I was not able to go to the funeral. Um, and I knew that she was ill and I knew that uh, she wasn't well. She wasn't well physically. And then unfortunately she, she fell and she uh, fractured her hip. And then she ha ended up going to hospital. And then unfortunately didn't come out of hospital because she was very frail. Um, and... Um, and she already had pneumonia and she had already other kind of health issues. Um, and I was thinking about my grandmother and how when I was little, I lived with my grandmother when I was little, um, death and people dying was something that um, it was talked about within the family. And I remember uh, very vividly um, possibly being maybe seven or eight years old and and having someone come to the house and say um, our neighbor died someone living in us in our street died and um, and it was not a, a hush conversation it was more like this person died he went to the hospital he wasn't well 
um, he died. And, and I remember just thinking, what, you know, what does that mean? You know, you die. And, and, um, and within that little town that I used to live in, mm-hmm. uh, they used to have, um, it's very, you know, I think it, possibly you you know and and maybe a lot of your uh, listeners would know but uh, Latin America South America is mostly Catholic mm. um, the Catholic religion is is very it's everywhere you know mm. we we look at you know the world part of our world is looked through that lens of religion and and sin and 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 doing good and there's a lot of rituals around uh, death and dying and I remember this particular neighbor that lived in our street he they came back that like there was a point where there was a, a, a wake there was a, a, an event which I couldn't explain when I was little and um, but I was taken my, my, my grandparents my grandmother took me and we entered this house and there was this man, this man that I didn't know. He was our neighbor, I knew, but I, di- I had never met him. And he was in his casket, um, open casket. Um, he was all embalmed and he was in the middle of the living room. And there were all chairs all around this body. Mm. And it was a very kind of solemn kind of environment. You would enter and people would be praying. Um, Women would be sitting around and everyone would be praying the rosary. Um, That would never stop because, Mm. uh, you know, I... in the Catholic religion, you have the rosary, right? And you have like this kind of set of prayers that you, that you, you, that, you know, you maybe you're familiar with it. Um, And so then one person would start it and then would end it. And then another person then would start another one and then another one. And basically it was a continuous, it was a, a a full day, how many hours, uh, you know, days and days, at least two days that I remember where people would just always be praying. And then there would be some women in the back in the kitchen preparing like little foods or little sandwiches or uh, drinks to offer to the people that would come and and pay respects for um people would come and pay respects to the body and that it would that all looked really surreal it was a very surreal experience and and at some point um there was an expectation that there was a knowing of like the soul what was still in the body of this person that was dead um and at some point the soul would leave the body and some people would talk about it like, oh, it's going to happen when at midnight or it's going to happen when the lights flicker. It's going to happen when there is a breeze in the room. <laughs> and that all just felt really uh, kind of magical, but scary to me mm. because I was a little child. Um, and I remember then people just feeling being very sad and, and crying and um, and upset people feeling really, really upset. And it was okay to show emotion. It was okay to show that you were upset. And then at some point, there was the the actual taking the body to the cemetery. And then the family would bring, you have to remember, I lived in a little, little town. So um, there wasn't a car that came and Mm. picked up the body. The family would carry the body and there would be some sort of procession a procession from the house to the cemetery and then everyone would follow behind and everyone would pay their respects and family would cry um, and that would be okay and that was not a weird thing it was a completely normal thing mm. and that's that's one of the f- the few memories that I remember about uh, grief the way that people were just really sad and then what would happen which still happens now is that um in when when there were anniversaries or birthdays then uh, the family then would go to church and ask the priest to name the deceased person to honor that person in front of the whole congregation and that is a way to honor the dead um 
And that is something that I know still happens now. That's something that happens for my grandmother. Um, every year, um, mm. the family gets together and goes to mass together um, to honor her, to honor the time of, you know, the, the time of her death. Mm. Um, and, um, and there's a lot of... Um, yeah, I think religion, religion within uh, when it comes to to death and dying is is really important in the in the Catholic um, in the Catholic community. You know, God is involved, church is involved. Um, there is a lot of praying to all the saints um, for the soul to go to the right place. Um, and there's a lot of praying also later when the person dies we still pray for their soul we still pray that they are in peace um and i don't know if that's any different than any other religion um but that's that's how i remember it and that's how it is for for a lot of us even mm. the venezuelan people or the latin american people that i know here that live in in hampshire yeah, I, I feel like from hearing um, the experiences that you have had as a child, um, you know, praying for the soul and the rosary beads. I mean, I, I identify as Muslim and we have the rosary beads as well and the mm -hmm. praying and then someone else takes their turn. Mm. Um, so that's really important for us as well. And, and praying for the departed soul to the next world because you, you believe in the next world. Is that right? I don't know what I believe. <laughs> um, I used to go to church. My, mm. my grandmother would take me to church every Sunday. Um, and I think when I was a teenager, at some point, I decided, I don't know if I believe anymore. Or I don't know if I believe in the institution, in the Catholic um mm. Yeah, hey. In Catholicism. Yeah. Not so much that I didn't believe in a God or a something higher out mm. there. And I think at that point, uh, when I could say no to go to church, I think I stopped. I stopped going. Um, and recently, I am more interested in, in Buddhist philosophies and, and, um, and not so focused on the afterlife as a place that you go to if you've been good or bad like if there's a good place or a bad place mm. um so i don't practice catholicism anymore mm. um and i do have friends that are that are so um that are are so are very religious and and really truly believe in the scripture and really truly believe that um really truly believe that the catholic religion is the religion for them and so um i really respect that um but i i have to say that for me that changed mm. and um and and i think about it differently now yeah it's, it sounds like it's evolved over, mm. over time um how you feel about it so i'm just curious to know um when your grandmother passed away um did religion play an aspect in into your grief then kind of what did that look like for you when your grandmother passed yes away? um it was interesting because by that time i had to church for a long time but I, I do remember praying and I do remember and I do remember of course feeling very guilty about not being able to go to the funeral and um, and that is kind of was also related to you know the I wasn't being the good granddaughter Mm. And somehow religion also comes into there, right? There's something about honoring your elders and, and, um, and I couldn't go. Um, and I remember, I remember being very shocked at the news. And I remember, uh, I remember praying. I remember praying for her. I remember asking god or or even when she was ill i still yeah I, I i remember praying and asking god um to um for her not to suffer for her not to be in physical pain um for her to have an easy transition 
Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting that even though I, I wasn't practicing Catholicism, still in that moment of 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 pain, I would say, uh, I did I did I did turn to religion, and I guess it was because it was her, and my grandmother um, was a very religious woman. Um, and so there was that connection there because that doesn't happen when other people that hasn't happened to me when other people have died. So it's interesting to think that it was only with her that I had that reaction. Mm. Mm. That's so I yeah, I think mm. it is related to the relationship that you had with that person and how they lived their life. Um, yeah, and I was thinking also about, you know, when she died and I was in such shock and I couldn't see her. Um, that was also a time in my life where um, I wasn't very happy with her. Um, I was I was kind of a bit mad, angry at her um, for things that had happened in the past. And so part of me kind of also blocked that grief, that pain. Mm-hmm. And I was in shock and I also wanted was praying for her, but I also couldn't go see her. But I also was kind of upset with her for the things that she had done in the past. And it was all a bit of a, of a, of a mess. Mm-hmm. It was a bit of a mess. It was very confusing. Um, and it was only years later, even now as I'm, as I'm older, that I've been able to feel uh, grief and, and be sad about the loss of my grandmother she she had so much knowledge about um so many things that i i missed out um and and i couldn't and i feel like i have missed out like there was a i didn't get to meet that as an adult woman, um, I've been living in Europe for for many years now, over 20 years. And so we were separated by by land masses. And Mm. we used to speak on the phone sometimes. But that relationship in the way that we had it when I was growing up with her was not there anymore. And so grief kind of also hit me in that way of like, oh, there's what could have been and what all the things that I should have been doing or that I shouldn't, that I should have done. Um, and that, and there was, that was a tough time to kind of come to terms with the loss of, of my grandmother, but the person also that raised me and, and the person that tried to do her best for me. Um, and, and I didn't feel that right then and there when she died, that came later. Mm. Um, and that like, still comes now in waves. Sometimes yeah. uh, I may be looking at something on Facebook and I see something that reminds me of her and I feel it again. And I think that's a very common, it that is, is very, a very common feeling. Everyone feels this way. Oh, yeah. It's very, very common in grief. And there mm. is there is a lot of shoulda, woulda, coulda. So mm. I, just, I just wonder, how do you come to terms with the shoulda, woulda, and I missed out? Oh, my gosh. Uh, yes. I think for a while I didn't know how to. I was just kind of in suffering. I was in pain thinking I could have gone. I should have gone to visit more. I should have called her more. Um, I should have called my mom to see how she was doing, you know, all those things. And um, and it was only later when I started practicing self-compassion um, mm. and self-forgiveness that that then I was able to give myself a break and say, uh, you know these things now because you are older and you have matured and you have more awareness of what was happening then. But then, then and there, you didn't know. You only did what you could and what you were based on what you knew at the time. And so you can keep on berating yourself for all the things that you didn't do and for all that you missed out. But you could also, you can also reframe it so that then you can also be grateful that she protected you, that she was there for you, that she did her best for you and that you did love her. Even maybe if you didn't show it that much at the time, 
And I think that really was helpful for me to to start practicing self-compassion and self-forgiveness because I couldn't go back in time and change it. Mm. I couldn't do, I couldn't undo it. Mm. I think you raise a really good point there about self-compassion and and forgiveness um i'm not sure we've talked about that enough on the podcast Mm. so it's definitely given me something to think about and i'm sure Mm. for all of the listeners and former guests uh thank you for sharing your experiences um of death and and grief and your grandmother what what was your grandmother's name elisa which is actually my second name my middle name is elisa um, or maybe you would say here Eliza, but um, but uh, Maria Maria Elisa, um, and and I was thinking about what you said about self self uh, compassion and self forgiveness. Um, it is something that um, it's something it is something that nobody really teaches us. You right. know this this idea of Are giving your, giving yourself a break. Yeah. It's like we live in a society where we are socialized to do, to not give ourselves a break, to to do to do and give more and produce more and um, and show off and you know and and that means we have to just work really 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 hard and as many hours as possible and that leaves us feeling like possibly feeling like it's never enough we're never going to be enough because there's there's always other people doing more or doing better and and actually um practicing self-compassion has given me a little bit of a break into um into into kind of pacing myself and slowing things down and not saying yes to every single thing that comes my way and learning to say no Mm -hmm. to things that are not helpful um and that comes with nurture and conscious effort. Um, that doesn't just happen, unfortunately. Uh, that is something that we have to work at. Absolutely. I take a lot away from that. Thank you mm. so much. It's definitely given me a lot to think about. Um, which kind of now brings me to say that, you know, if, if you were to if you were to say to people this is the one thing that I want you to know about grief what would it be it hurts (laughs) grief hurts bloody painful so painful and when someone dies it physically hurts and and there's I felt for myself uh, I have felt it was like a wave a wave of all the good and all the bad and all the regrets about all the things that could have been or how the relationship could have been just kind of hits me randomly. Um, so grief is is kind of a friend in a way. It's someone that I invite sometimes to keep me company if I want to make the space to think about the people that I, that I love that have died or if I want to think in particular about my grandmother. I kind of make time to to think about her and to know that those feelings will come, and sometimes it just hits me like I'm in I'm I'm shopping I'm out, and then it's like it appears all of a sudden this kind of feeling this kind of sense and that reminds me of her, um, and I'm trying to practice more uh, mindfulness so that when it does happen when I'm not expecting it instead of um setting it aside to to sit with it for a moment and to and to embrace it and to welcome it because it's there for a reason Mm. um and so i'm learning not to get annoyed when it comes and i'm in the middle of um of something um if i can give it time i will give it time because it is part of me it is part of what makes me now um and grief is also the connection is like the connecting link to the person that I've lost. Mm. So when I think of my grandmother and I, I shed a tear or I have a memory of something nice that happened with her, um, I'm still keeping that relationship going. I still have conversations with her, 
um, I'm, uh, when I'm home alone, when I'm home alone, but even when my family is here, they can hear me talking to myself. Um, but there is something, it can be really painful, but it can also, um, it can be really nourishing. And I know that sounds strange, but but there's something nourishing about honoring those memories and when they come to give them time and space to be um, instead of maybe um, just setting them aside because it's too painful. It is painful, um, but I guess that's part of, of, I guess for me it's part of, of wanting to of wanting to face it instead of run away from it. Mm. And and the funny thing, of course, is we know that when we face something, then it's, it's never as bad as we think it's, it, it was. And so uh, so then I it, it's a moment, it happens, and it goes, and it's okay, instead of me thinking, I don't want to think about it, I don't want to think about it, it's too painful, I, I didn't do, I wasn't there, or whatever. Um, and I think... Um, it helps me. It helps me connect with her when when she when she comes to visit me in my memories. I I I'm happy and I'm glad that she's there. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Mm. Um, I guess I kind of want to reflect that. Uh, you know, since I've been podcasting and working in bereavement, because that is my day job, mm. I realise that when it comes to pain, sometimes. For people as you say it's too painful to sit with that pain so that you will go and be busy you will yes. distract yourself with something else I don't want to sit with the pain I'd rather be busy mm. is there any kind of guidance you would give about that on the long term and what mm. that I think uh, I I when I speak to clients about um, death and grief and bereavement and when they come and say it is too painful uh, and I can't talk about it um, well as therapists we know that that's something to honor right we cannot make people talk about the things that they don't want to talk about but um, I think some things that are helpful are um, finding creative ways to express that pain and that grief and that loss mm. so um, journaling writing a letter to the person that you've lost is really helpful sometimes uh, for people that are creative and like to draw or paint um, something, you know, drawing or painting the person or, or an image that reminds them of them, that's helpful. Um, some people um, like to go to the places where they used to spend time together because that is a way of connecting um, some people don't want to talk about it because they feel that grief is very personal and and subjective and nobody really is going to understand the pain of, of, of losing whoever person that they loved um, or the pe or the person that they hated, right? Because yeah, it could pe be. people yeah. die, right? People die and some people um, are not going to grieve. Not, we all grieve in different ways depending on that relationship that we had mm -hmm. with the person. Um, and I, I guess finding creative ways to let, to let it out if that's what they want, you know, in whichever way possible um, that... That could be that could be something that I could say it's been helpful. I've seen that it's helpful. Um, we still relationships with the people that we lose, right? We have those continual okay. bonds, right? Mm. And so, some people. I remember, I you know, I remember people talking to me. Even friends talked to me about like I talked to my husband's picture. You know, there's a picture and, and I and I go and have tea with him or uh, we sit together and um, and that's very comforting and nourishing to feel the presence of that person. Um, so I guess I'm not I don't think I'm being very good at trying to give tips out because it is such a it is such a personal thing for myself. What I have found is that I do talk to my grandmother uh, out loud. Like as, as and and I imagine her just listening, just being my therapist, just listening, um, 
and me telling her about what's going on or me going back in time and and talking about things that happened when I was little and when I used to live with her and um and that in itself is very comforting to me um or sometimes I I have a journal and um I just do mind maps I, I like doing mind maps so then um I put her name and then I let everything that I felt that happened and how I feel, how I felt then and how I feel now kind of just flow. Um, and that is, it, it, that brings some sort of release. And for me, it all, it always brings some sort of clarity as to what happened then and how I feel now. Um, so those are some of the things that I know have helped me and have helped my clients in the past really lovely Marvis thank you so mm -hmm. much for sharing I can definitely say that I've benefited a lot from journaling but obviously mm -hmm. not everybody likes to write so if you like to draw or paint or mm -hmm. do something else creative um, if you find that helpful you know um, maybe that's an option to explore yes so before we go to the gratefulness challenge um, how can my listeners reach you do you have any social media website I know you're in private practice um, yes, um, I have a um, I have a website. It's called MarvisCounseling.co.uk, and um, that's for my private practice. Yes, I do. I work two days in private practice, and um, some social media. But the social media that I'm that I'm choosing to engage more within my um, therapist capacity is my Twitter account, and that is uh, Marvis Stewart One. And that's my handle. And the S, at, uh, it, it, it's Marvis. And then the same S that ends my name is the same S that starts my last name. So there's only one S um, in the name. Um, and that's where I am. And that's where I kind of I'm listening to everyone and engaging with people regarding scoped and regarding all, all sorts of other things uh, within the counseling profession. So that's where you can find me. That's lovely. Thank you very much. So thank you to all of the listeners that have tuned in today. We now go to the gratefulness challenge. Um, Marvis, shall I go first so you have some time to yes. think about it? Yes. Okay. Um, I have really enjoyed today's chat. I felt very connected, not because I've not felt connected previously, but it was good to talk about Gestalt and um, in a way that I've never heard it uh, spoken about before. So, so thank you for that. I'm really grateful that we, we had this chat today and that we made this happen. I think it's important to know why people do what they do. Um, yeah, so for me, just really grateful to be with you and have this conversation because it did feel very therapeutic and has given me a bit of insight into Latin American communities um, and if anyone is listening from the Latin American community South America because uh, we do have listeners in Peru we have listeners in Brazil uh, we have listeners in Chile if you know if you are born here in the UK or elsewhere and you want to come on the podcast I would definitely hold space for you to hear about your experiences but I just feel very grateful to you Marvis for opening my eyes up actually to things that I hadn't given much thought about like self-compassion and forgiveness and it's probably something that I need to explore a bit deeper so yeah uh, in the here and now uh, that's what I'm grateful for thank you thank you thank you for saying those lovely things um I'm really grateful. I was thinking about, you know, what am I grateful for? There's many things uh, that I'm grateful for, and I do practice gratitude. That's also part of my self-care, practicing gratitude. One, two, three things that I'm grateful for every day before I go to sleep. Um, that is part of my practice. Um, but I, I was thinking that really lately I've, I've been feeling extremely grateful for Twitter and the community that I have found there within the uh, Therapist Connect Network and the Counselors Together UK Network. Um, and I would not have found you if it wasn't for Twitter. I found you. Yes. <laughs> um, and so I'm really grateful that I'm there and that I 
I can use uh, a little bit of my voice in there and that I can be connected to so many other like-minded therapists uh, and that I can listen to a lot of people's opinions and, and that in a way, you know, Twitter connects us to the world instantly, right? It's, it's really, I mean, I find Twitter completely fascinating. And so that's what I'm grateful for, for, um, for community, um, for t having found a community um, on Twitter of therapists and, and people that are really interesting and fascinating um, and finding you and being able to reach out to you. And here we are now talking about uh, my experiences. Well, that was a very brilliant Marvis Stewart. She's a humanistic Gestalt counsellor. A lot of insight and knowledge from today's conversation. I really, really enjoyed that. Let's wish her a lot of love and continued success with the very important work she is doing. Well, until next time, folks, take good care of yourself.